0: I'm Liz with Teachstone, and this is Teaching with Class. We're back for another episode on behavior management. This week's questions focus on meeting the needs of students with behavior plans and more severe behavior. I've brought in our expert, Sarah Haddon. You today I am doing well. Thank you so much for agreeing to do this. Before I ask you questions, can you tell us a little bit about yourself?
1: Sure, I'm Sarah and I, I oversee the research work we do here at Teachstone. but in a previous life, I was an early childhood special ed teacher. actually have done um, been an early childhood special ed teacher educator and researcher and so I have a lot of experience in this. Most notably, I spent the most of my teaching career teaching young children with autism.
0: Wonderful. Well, then um, these questions will be right up your alley. I'll, I'll start mm-hmm. with, how do you support students with behavior plans, specifically students on the autism spectrum that may exhibit outbursts and hitting?
1: Um, so that's a really broad and very open-ended question. And the first thing I would say is one of the things that you need to do is figure out what's in the behavior plan. Mm-hmm. And is the behavior plan detailed enough that you, as the teacher, understands what steps you need to take when kids are exhibiting what some people will term challenging behaviors. Mm -hmm. So that's really the first thing. And if the behavior plan isn't uh, clear enough for you to understand what you're supposed to do, then you really need to go back to the team that wrote that plan and say, we really need some clarification here. Mm -hmm. But then once you have a a, a sense of how it's supposed to be done, then it's really important to take some data on how well it's working because Sometimes the behavioral plans aren't the most effective plans that they could be. I know um, from, also, also, I was also a program support teacher for an autism program, and I remember one of the things that um, sometimes the teachers would say to me is, well, I already tried that, and my response was, well, how long did you try it? So you want to take data, but you also really want to think about how long you're collecting data, especially if kids are, are um, engaging in disruptive behaviors because they want attention. Um, they've probably been continuing to do that because they learned that when I act up, I get this attention. And so they're going to try harder and harder and harder to get break a habit to get well, I'm just long. like how many times? OK, I used to just have to ask you twice and I got it. And now it's three times or four times. And so they're trying to figure out what's different. Mm-hmm. Um And why all of a sudden are you ignoring me? Mm -hmm. And so when we ignore a child because we realize they're acting up for attention, it's called extinction in behavioral terms. And there's a real phenomenon called an extinction burst, where kids will just try harder and harder and harder to, to use the same behavior to get your attention until they realize, oh, this doesn't work. So it's really not unusual to see behavior increase initially before it goes down. So that's one thought. But then my other thought is uh, much more generic, which is that we really need to understand why kids are, quote unquote, um, acting up in the first place. Honestly, I think that this could also relate to the second question. Do you want, Do you to want me to go
0: right for it? Yes. All right. This one says we struggle with severe behaviors that are beginning to affect our class scores, staff turnover, enrollment, etc. We utilize Conscious Discipline and have considered implementing a different program. I'd like to see an integrated approach that better meets the needs of our children and staff.
1: Okay, thank you. And I think for both of those questions, the real answer is there's no magic bullet. Mm -hmm. Um, And Conscious Discipline is a very good program. Lots of people have used it with a great deal of success. One of the things I would ask um, anybody who's listening or whomever wrote this question to consider is the fidelity of their implementation and I can think back to my days in teaching when I taught in the same school district you used to mm-hmm. teach in, and having a child who had really very significant and challenging behaviors. And I remember at one point realizing, it was it actually was a class full of kids with challenging behaviors, but it, so at one point I realized that the behavior that I was working very hard to, to extinguish that actually my instructional assistant was um, actually reinforcing the behavior. And so there wasn't a fidelity. And once I realized that, we were able to come back together and say, whoa, let's, let's talk about that. But she'd been there before me the year before I joined that school, and that's what the previous teacher had done. And so, um, so we had a lot of work ahead of us in order to get on the same page about how to deal with this um, particular child. So fidelity is really important, and not just fidelity within your own team, but fidelity to the model. Um, Both are really important. The reason I think these two questions are related is because there isn't a magic bullet. Um, There's no one thing we're gonna do that's going to solve all of our problems in our classrooms, (laughs) um, especially in classrooms where We know that we're seeing more and more kids who have IEPs. We're seeing more and more kids, for example, being diagnosed as as being on the autism spectrum. Um, And we're also just seeing more and more kids who are really experiencing some some pretty undesirable home environments and circumstances that impede development. And what we really need to do is step back and think, okay, so why are the kids acting this way in the first place? you know, my my line has long been that kids are not acting in specific ways because they want to pull our chains or push our buttons, with the exception of our own children, <laughs> because they are biologically designed to push our buttons. I think that's just a fact, having raised a couple of them myself. But for other kids, that's not what's going on. And um, really starting in the mid-80s are thinking about how to address challenging behavior really changed as a field. So, yes, I'm also dating myself. (laughs) Um, But around that time, we really started to think about the fact that behavior serves a function. Um, And that's particularly true for kids who have disabilities and kids who have limited speech capacities because, you know, a typical, you know, four-year-old can say, I don't like that mommy or tell the teacher That boy is bugging me. But for a child with a disability or one with uh, communication problems, it's much harder to be able to articulate those thoughts. And often we see two main functions of behavior. One is to get something. Mm -hmm. Again, often that's attention. And the other is to avoid something. We really need to be able to figure out what's going on. So I'll I'll tell two quick anecdotes. And the first one was about um, a child who wanted to get something mm-hmm. and her name was Christina she did have autism um, she was four years old when she came to our program and I don't think that child could sit still for more than about 30 seconds at a pop mm-hmm. he would spring up from her chair and she'd run away and she'd spring up from her chair and she'd run away and we'd go back and get her and we'd go back and get her and we'd look at her and we'd say Christina it's time to sit down and we'd take her back um, so that she could be with the group for circle it might have, in retrospect, been an unrealistic expectation on our part. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a whole nother story because we do need
0: to think <laughs> about <in> podcast. <laughs> what our
1: expectations are for kids. But that was one of the expectations in the program was that kids would learn to to sit for at least you know five to ten minutes um, for an activity. Anyway, so we kept going and, and, and getting her and looking at her and saying, you know, this is what you need to do. Nothing was changing. We were taking lots of data on how many times... Christina was jumping up from her chair during just circle time. At one point, we we talked to her mother. And we when we learned that that was a game she played with her dad, it was chase. Aww. And I remember one day after I learned that, sitting back and actually watching and realizing that when Christina ran to the other side of the room, she turned around, she looked at us, and she would jump around excitedly. And how we missed Jumped that me. clue in the first case, I really don't know. So we changed our tact. Didn't give her any kind of eye contact or verbal contact, but just let her back, had her sit down, said, this is where you need, you know, this is sitting, this is sitting at circle. And then we started reinforcing her on a very, very regular basis about nice job sitting in your circle. So she was still gaining attention, Mm -hmm. but she was gaining attention from the behavior she should have been doing according to what we were thinking about. And the, then the other one is to avoid something. And it was in the same um, school, but this involved kids in, uh, in the general education setting. The school was in suburban Washington, D.C. We did not have air conditioning except in the office. And um, for anyone who knows that part of the world, it was built on a swamp. And so it's very muggy and humid. And I used to walk by the office which was, as I noted, air-conditioned, because that's a key. And it was also glassed in. And on really hot days, particularly in the afternoon, I would see all these boys just sitting in chairs, lined up on the edges of the office. And they'd see other kids go by, and they'd like almost put their thumbs up, like, look at me. <laughs> they avoided having to do work, and they avoided having to swelter in their classroom, which was um, in a really hot part of the building. And so in that case... We were really reinforcing the teacher by sending them. Yeah, it's called negative reinforcement when kids do more, even though we think we're punishing them. So that's one thing. The other thing I want to talk about is that, and it relates again to the why kids do something. Let's take a couple of behaviors. A child might cry because they're frustrated. Maybe they can't figure out how to put the piece in the puzzle. So they're very frustrated. They don't have the language to ask for help. So they may cry. They may also cry because their dad just dropped them off and they're sad that their dad is left. Or they may cry because they're really engaged in this activity they're doing. They're building this fabulous block structure (laughs) and we sing the cleanup song and everybody Mm -hmm. everywhere cleans up (laughs) and they're crying because they don't want to stop doing it. So the behavior is the same, but it has three different communicative functions Similarly, um, and particularly since we're talking about the autism spectrum, I I thought about a a student who might hit herself in the head. Um, So, self injurious behavior. Again, they may do it because they're frustrated. They're trying to, it's snack time, and they're trying to open up their applesauce and they can't get it open. And so, the way they're showing their frustration is to whack themselves in the head. They may also be hitting themselves in the head because they've got an earache and hitting themselves on the side of their head might be relieving the pain it feels good and sometimes they may be hitting themselves in the head because it actually causes a a visual stimulation and when we think about self-stimulatory behaviors gosh once again it's the same behavior but it's got three different Mm
0: -hmm. functions
1: that that it's trying to communicate so we can't assume that a specific behavior means the same thing for every child but we also can't assume that, that a behavior doesn't mean the same thing every time a specific child. So I can think about a, a, a child named Myron and Myron, you know, maybe he hit first time he hit himself. It was because he's frustrated, but then he hits himself later on and also starts crying and, and hitting himself at the ear. And I think, Hmm, maybe I should take him to the school nurse. And she looks in, and it's like, Oh my gosh, look at this ear. It's mm-hmm. all inflamed. But again, he might also be hitting himself without visual stimul stimulation. And we can think about, to maybe drive this home for people who haven't worked with kids with some such challenging behaviors, although I suspect you are if you're listening <laughs> to this, think about infants because infants only have one way to communicate, and it's through crying. But we know, anybody who's had a baby knows that the cries sound different. There have been research studies where researchers have taped babies crying and then gotten a group of mothers together and then played different cries from the babies And the mothers were immediately able to not only pick out their child's cry, but pick out what that child was communicating. Mm, And it's, I mean, to me, it's, I do have this research background, so I think it's really fascinating. And that's where uh, I think um, the class really comes in, is thinking about that teacher sensitivity, and particularly in the infant and toddler age ranges. um, We talk about cue detection. We're not as likely to see, you know, what we would call traditional challenging behaviors within in, in infants for sure, but in toddlers, um, not as much. We really see a lot more of that around preschool. Yet, cue detection is is critical in terms of our awareness of kids. And so that cue detection is really important.
0: And understanding that a student on the autism spectrum might be overwhelmed by different things than your other students, Thank might you. be not able... To sit on the carpet for as long as another right. student, you really might have to alter your expectations as well. Right.
1: So I'm going to give another anecdote, and this was a little boy named Matthew. And Matthew um, spent two years in with me and my staff in our program for kids with autism, and then went, which was in a public school setting, and then went into a speech language classroom for kindergarten because he was he had typical intelligence. He was quite verbal for a child with autism, and. He could really, and we knew that he could really benefit from that. Well, he had some auditory sensitivities. I remember um, in preschool, we worked really hard with him to keep him from having a meltdown when the fire alarm went off because (laughs) it just really bothered him. And I can remember we were in a, a comprehensive elementary school and they still expected my little kids to behave just like everybody else. So quiet hi, in the hi. hall, yada yada yada. And we did our best and our kids, and the kids did their best too. Um, but I can remember if we were walking down the hall and the fire alarm went off, he would just kind of freak out. And then because he would see the, he saw the alarm, he just actually associated that side of the hallway mm-hmm. with that horrible auditory stimulation. And so we had to, because of the rules of the school, again, we had to work with him and help him understand that you're going to be okay. Look, you're walking down the hall. I'm going to hold your hand. I'm going to help you. It's all okay. Look, you just walked by that red alarm. Nothing happened. So you're all right. Well, in kinder- in the kindergarten classroom, they assigned him a seat that was right under the alarm, the fire alarm. And I got a call from his parents within the first 10 days of school, and they were in a panic because they wanted to kick him out of the program mm-hmm. and make him um, go into the more restrictive autism-only program. They, they gave me permission to go out and observe him, and as soon as I walked in, I knew what the issue was.
0: I mean, probably the announcements were coming out of the, the same thing. was very loud.
1: Exactly, about... exactly. And so after being there for an afternoon and watching him, um, when I met with his teacher, I said, I really think I understand the problem. I think if you could just, and it's that alarm PA system you could just move him to the other side of the room up close to you, I think that it would solve the problem. And it did. And so, Liz, your point about thinking about what we may think is fine may not be fine for a kid. Um, yeah, need the, the trigger? Yeah, what are the triggers? Exactly. And so what I'm going to talk about is this is this really quick system that can help you get a handle on your kid's behavior. And the only thing you really need is a piece of lined paper, a ruler, a clipboard, and a pen. And what you're going to do is you're going to make a chart. You're going to make three columns. At the top of each column, one, you're going to write down A, which stands for antecedent, what happens before the behavior. Liz is nodding her head You know about this. B stands for behavior. So what does the behavior look like that is troubling? And then C is the consequence. Said, so put it on a clipboard, have a pen, Think about a time of day when the behavior is most disruptive Mm -hmm. Um, because you can't take data on behaviors all day long because that's all you're going to do. But think about when it's most disruptive to you or to the other kids in the class and then clearly define what the behavior means. For example, I remember doing a a kind of an intervention. Again, this is go back to kids sitting in chairs. Um, You know, was a child out of their seat if they stood up? Were they out of their seat if they were uh, partially standing up? Were they out of their seat if they
0: um, kneeling on their chair? If they were kneeling (laughs) on their
1: chair, or if they had their chair tipped so far up that their butts weren't touching the chair? Mm -hmm. All right, Um, because we initially worked on sitting in chairs because it was important for their next environment where they were going to. We knew Mm -hmm. they were going to need to be able to sit in chairs for at least small periods of time um, to be successful. And uh, what we found was that some of our kids figured out that um, if they scooted their chair around the room, they were still <laughs> technically in their seat. So we really had to, or if again, their, their entire bottom wasn't touching the chair, but the backs of their legs were against mm-hmm. the edge. They were still, you know, were smart they, kids. they were smart kids. <laughs> um, and so we really had to clearly um, define what that behavior looked like, which is important to also to have that fidelity so that everybody who is working with that child really knows. And so what we would do, and lots of people I'm sure on this podcast, listening to this podcast are familiar with this as well, is that you clearly define the behavior, you define the time, and then you have one person, and ideally you have another person in the class, who every time the behavior happens, they they jot, jot it down. And they also talk about what was happening. Sometimes we see clear antecedents to behaviors. So for example, if you've got a child who has issues with space, if another child gets too close to them, you can see it on their face that they're starting to get upset. So that's a clear antecedent. But sometimes you really can't tell, Mm -hmm. but then you might write down plain and centers, or you could say the time and note, note later on that, gosh, every time this child gets upset, it's right about this time of the day. Hmm, that's 10 minutes before snack. Hmm, is this child hungry? Do I need to find out from um, his parents, caregivers, did he or she have breakfast that morning? Because those kinds of things, again, kids um, who have poor communication skills can't necessarily say, I'm hungry, I didn't have breakfast. They might not be able to say, I didn't sleep last night. Mm -hmm. And then we write down the consequence. So what's happening? So you're like, I'm convinced that those kids, those boys um, who were sitting in the principal's office, if nobody made faces at them and smiled and gave them thumbs up back, they might not have been so interested in sitting in the principal's office. And I'm 99% certain that at the principal's office, if they had had to sit in a chair outside the principal's office, I doubt they would have been there because it was sweltering in that hallway and there was no cross breeze.
0: So consequence, not even necessarily a negative consequence in this example of Just what is the result? What's What's the result?
1: Right. Um, Because honestly, when kids learn behaviors because they work for them. If um, they're hitting, do they get the toy? If they're hitting, do they get the toy? So I I once got a a child in my program, and she'd been at a a private therapeutic center um, before she came to me at age four. And the first day of school, she self-injured herself a thousand times. And I know that because we were a research facility. Um, within a public school, but we were still, we were a research site. And um, I had a graduate student who just used a clicker clicker and clicked. So this little girl self-injured herself a thousand times in the first four hours of of preschool with us. One of the things we found out was that at her previous center, they just let her do whatever she wanted. Mm -hmm. Um, And I remember my director coming in couple days before school started and said, I need to give you a heads up about this child. He was an autism expert. He said, this is the most difficult child I've ever encountered in my career. And she was. She was very difficult. And it was terrifying to watch a child that age be in so much distress and also hurt herself the way she she was injuring herself. What would happen in the previous program is if they asked her to do something she didn't want to do, Okay, she wanted to avoid something, she would just she would start to scream and whine and hit herself. And they didn't want her to do yeah. that. And so she'd get out of it. So in behavioral terms, they'd really shaped up that behavior really well. Mm-hmm. It was a lot of um, blood, sweat, and tears on the part of myself and my staff and our research partners to really help this child understand that that's actually not how you want to get what you want. We're going to help you learn how to get what you want. And we
0: did. this mm-hmm. so- goes back
1: to your extinction exactly exactly it's
0: gonna get worse before it gets
1: better yeah exactly so one of the things then is once you've looked at this information and you want to do it i would say for a full week Mm. um so also note day of week you might find kids who have more problems on mondays after a weekend but then you want to look at your at your information and, and look to see what kind of patterns you get and you may see for example and i'll actually go back to this little girl because um, she had no functional communication with us except to scream and cry and hurt herself mm-hmm. and so one of the first things we did was we thought okay how can we help her communicate and we made her two picture cards and one meant i um, i want something and it was a picture of her hand and so it paired with mm-hmm. holding out her hand so if she started to get stressed we would um, say what do you want and we'd and we'd have her point to that picture and then we would give her a choice of things that she that we knew were very preferred items Mm -hmm. for her to hold or play with and so we had to honor that want card and then the other card was out i want to leave again over time she learned that you know we put her always at the edge of any group she'd start to get antsy so we'd see these early signs we'd say oh do you want to get out, and we'd show her the card, and if she took the card, that communication helped a lot for us. The other thing to think about is that regard and giving kids choices. Um, As I was
0: going say, that's, that's regard. Yeah. And you were the first one to even honor that she was trying to communicate something.
1: Yeah, like. yeah, she really was trying to communicate something, and it was important um, to her. And then just a couple of other thoughts is as you're looking at um, this kind of data you provide. And of course, you can always follow up with us here at Teachstone because uh, some of us could talk about this all afternoon. Mm-hmm. But really, we need to think about, again, that it, for some kids, any attention is better than no attention. So negative attention, don't do that, could be something that maintains that behavior. If kids are acting up to get our attention, then having them sit and watch or a quiet thought is a good idea. But if kids are acting up because it's too hard, don't send them to timeout. That's not helping them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think you know, there's, there tends to be uh, a lot of people thinking that if kids act up, we're just going to send them to a quiet chair or a sit and think chair. But our response to challenging behavior really needs to match what the child is communicating. And then we need to teach them a better way to communicate that with us.
0: Thank you so much for coming in. You're welcome. In. Absolutely. Thank you for joining us for Teaching with Class. Our next episode will focus on questions related to being new to class. Sign in to the class learning community, let us know how we're doing and share your questions today.